Hey, Snacks, It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm here to chat 403, The False Bride. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Seasons 6 and 7, Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Beast That I'm Gone, and any random news concerning projects for all of our favorite actors, including Sam Hugh and Katrina Balfe, Richard Rankin, and Sophie Skelton. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 4, Episode 3, The False Bride. everyone. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Sassnack Files. Last week, I took a week off for personal reasons, but I am back and ready to go this week. We're talking 403, The False Bride, and oh boy, this one is loaded down with stuff to talk about. So without further ado, we'll just dive on right in. So the first thing that I want to talk about since we've got two separate timelines going on right now, is Roger and Brie, because I feel like that is really front-loaded in this episode. I mean, the episode starts out with Roger. So I think that this episode is kind of where things started to tank for the Roger character in the fandom. And so I'm I'm going to try to do some CPR for those of you that are not quite understanding his character or think he's a jackass. Because I promise you he's not, and I think that a lot of it is portrayed in the writing of this show, has nothing to do with Rick Rankin's portrayal of it or the character that Diana created. It's just that he's not well written, especially in this episode when we get to his reactions and things like that. So we're going to break down, kind of deep dive into the emotions of Bree and Roger during this episode. And then we will take a beat and get into the Jamie and Claire half of the episode. So the false bride opens up. It is 1970 in Inverness. The job is done. The manse is sold to Fiona and her lovely new husband. Aren't they cute together? It's so adorable. Um, Especially because when we last saw Fiona, she was crushing hard on Roger. And now she's found happiness and is buying the manse, a place that was so important to the beginnings of this story that we're now completely and totally in love with. So it's good to know that it's in good hands, and I'm sure Roger feels that way too, seeing as it's his childhood home. I think it would probably help to see it going to someone he knows is going to take care of it. So that's where we're at. Roger is kind of cutting all the tethers. He's floating loose in the air. Where does he go next? Does he move back to Oxford? Does he go to Brianna? He's at a point in his life where he's ready to make changes and settle down. And this is a giant impact on his actions later on in the episode, because I think that's something very important to understand about these characters of Brie and Roger. When we're looking at kind of their relationship, it breaks because at this point, it's been two years. The last time we saw Brie and Roger, it was. 1968. And yeah, things looked really promising, but to be honest, they didn't really know each other that well. 
And so fast forward, we spent the entire back half of season three and the first two episodes of season four with Jamie and Claire. That also gives you an inside view into how long Jamie and Claire have now been together at this point. Two years, 18 months, something in there is how long Jamie and Claire have been together. They're settled in their new life together and wanting to find a home. That is one of the huge parallels in this episode. We'll see this time and again, how the writers have taken two completely different timelines and two completely separate couples, and they weave their storylines in, and we see parallels, we see symbolism within the two plots that reflects something that's happening in the other plot and timeline. So I'll point those out for you as we go along. But I find it extremely interesting that they have kind of picked and chosen different points along the way as a callback to what's happening with the other storyline as well. Whenever we see Jamie and Claire, it's just interesting to note that they're back to Jamie and Claire, right? The adjustment period is over. And for us watching the show, it's very easy to, yeah, sometimes they put the like time stamp on the bottom, but it's very easy to kind of overlook that three seconds or to forget what the last time stamp on the last episode was and be like, okay, I don't really know how much time has passed. Like, oh, great. This is the year 1772. Okay, cool. You know, because it's it's so easy to forget what year we actually ended up in whenever Claire went back to Jamie in the first place. So two years, it's been two long years. It's honestly kind of surprising at this point that Roger and Brie are not any more developed in their relationship than they are. It plays very awkwardly. And I, I think that was the intention of it, especially between the actors, to not really know where the emotions were. It's just very like, oh, hi. And they like dodge around each other. Are they going to kiss? Are we not going to kiss? Are we there yet? Well, let's just hug awkwardly. Okay, cool. (laughs) You know, like I'm sure Roger would just love to lay one on her. And I think that she's kind of being shy about it too, which is very uh, uncharacteristic of Brianna. She's normally very upfront and straightforward with what she wants and what she thinks. But for some reason in this instance, they're just not clicking And it really makes the viewer wonder, like, what the heck is going on with these two? Like, have they been broken up? What are we seeing here? And I think that that is one thing that the show did a poor job of. We're just kind of thrown into their relationship and it seems very, very fast. The whole thing seems extremely forced. And whenever we're comparing the couples of Brianna and Roger to Jamie and Claire, Of course, we're more invested in Jamie and Claire as a couple because we spend more time with them. How can we be expected to be as invested in Brianna and Roger as a couple when we've spent all of two episodes watching them be a couple and we've spent four seasons watching Jamie and Claire be a couple? And for all intents and purposes, Brianna and Roger should have had the same amount of developmental time. That's why viewers don't appreciate their relationship show-only watchers, I should say, because readers, we understand that awkward vibe. We understand where each of these characters are coming from. So it's not as much of a giant leap for us, but for people that are just watching the show, I totally get it. Why would you be as invested in these characters as you are Jamie and Claire? You don't know Brie and Roger from Adam and Eve, you know? Like, it's, it's, um, it was a mistake on the showrunner's part. I fully believe that to the core. So like I said, I'm going to try to enlighten 
viewers that are interested to know more about Brie and Roger and kind of where they're coming from in this episode so that maybe it helps you understand their characters a little more down the line and maybe makes your opinion of how cowardly or mean Roger is just maybe take it down a notch because I really feel like he is a misunderstood character in this show. So Roger's coming to the U.S. for a Scottish festival. This is the cover story. He's been asked to perform at the Scottish festival. Really, he just wants to spend time with Brie. And can you blame him? I mean, it's like Fiona said, he is clearly in love with her. And the fact that they have made it two years in their relationship without saying I love you is kind of a red flag. I mean, <laughs> like, I get it. You don't want as a show to say, well, all of this happened off screen and here we are and they're, they're, they're just this happy couple. We want to see these dramatic moments. I mean, we don't watch Outlander because it's all fun and giggles, you know, but I think that was one mistake that it was more about their love for each other than about the marriage proposal or the sex. So that was mistake number two of this episode. When we get to the Scottish festival, I mean, first off, the set dressing for this Scottish festival was absolutely awesome. I want to go to this Scottish festival so bad. It just looks so cool. And they pulled all of the 70s garb into it. Everybody's in their tartans and they've got the era appropriate cars and clothing and everything's dressed up. And it's a traditional uh, Highland Games environment. What I found really cool about it is that when they're walking into the Scottish Festival, you kind of see all the booths in the background as they're talking about, um, Brianna says, my mother told me men in kilts are irresistible, being really flirty. And they pass a booth that says, America's oldest Scottish Festival. And I, I had something click for me in that moment because this festival that they are at right now is the gathering that John Quincy Myers was talking about to Jamie and Claire when they're in the wagon headed up into the Blue Ridge Mountains. And he's talking about, yeah, all the Scottish settlers come there and trade goods and all of this stuff. That's where a gathering took root in the Appalachian Mountains back in the 18th century. People would come down from the mountains, particularly Scottish settlers. They would all band together. It would be a solid week or two weeks of trade, commerce, telling stories, meeting old friends, playing games, you know, all of this stuff. And this is where the tradition of the calling of the clans came from. And this is explained a bit more in The Fiery Cross, but it's not included in the show, which is why I'm taking time to explain it here. They would all sit around the bonfire at night and announce who had come that day, who was there. And so that's where it's the McDonald's are here, the Gordons are here, the McKenzie's are here, so that everybody knew who was there. And so that's where this tradition came from. But it's interesting to see the evolution of the Scottish Festival into what we see in the 1970s portrayal where it is very much all fun and games and Kaylee dances and sword dancing and, you know, all kinds of fun stuff that we typically think of when we think of a Highland Games in today's society. 
but it served a very real and practical purpose back in the 18th century. And so I think that that's something that overlays over the plot. So it's interesting to see the evolution just in a couple minutes. So this episode accomplishes a lot. And this this keeps happening throughout the episode. So like I said, I'll make sure to point it out. The Kaylee dance. There was a line where, because this is all very foreign to Brianna, she is using the Scottish festival as a way to embrace her heritage, but it's also reminding her a lot of her mom at the same time. And I love how Roger reaches out and says, I'm sorry, is this hard for you to be here? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to upset you. And she said, it does remind me of my mom and I worry about her because I, I wonder if she ever found Jamie and I hope she's happy. And this is also a parallel because we get a similar scene between Jamie and Claire, where Claire is talking to Jamie as they're riding their horses through the wilderness towards Woolham's Creek. And they're talking about what did Brianna decide to do with her life? Because when Claire left, it was all up in the air. She had just withdrawn from Harvard and didn't know where she was going in life. And Claire is telling Jamie, I don't know what she decided to do. I hope she found something that she's passionate about. I still worry about her every day. And Jamie's saying, you know, Dinafash, you're always telling me how quick-witted she is. I'm sure she's fine. So they're having these mirrored moments where they're talking to their significant others about how much they're worried about each other. And I found it really beautiful that they have this mother-daughter bond and they still think about each other daily and worry about each other and hope that they're happy. And it has to be really hard for both of these characters because Brianna, Claire was the only person that she was close with that she had left. And, you know, while Brianna was okay with her leaving, it was still a tough decision for her. And for Claire, I mean, that's her daughter. And she knows that, yes, while she's happy with Jamie in the 18th century, and ultimately that was the decision and the sacrifice that she made, she also knows that potentially her daughter is growing up, getting married, having kids, and she's missing all of that. And above all else, she knows where her daughter was emotionally when she left. And so she doesn't have that closure of knowing whether Brianna found what she was passionate about in life, whether she found love, whether she is okay. So that has to be really hard for that to just be dangling in the back of their mind with no way to get real closure on it. So that's also important to take note in because when you look at the whole issue of Roger and Brie, like I said, Roger is in a very, very different place from Brianna in this episode. And it's hard, I think, for them to convey this to each other because they have a long distance relationship. They, like Roger said to Fiona, they write, they have the occasional phone call, but they've really only seen each other two or three times in the past year. And so how much of a deep conversation where they talk about the really important things in life, how many opportunities are they getting to discuss those things when they only see each other in person two or three times a year? So it's not surprising that whenever they have this moment and Roger, Roger thinks he knows who Brianna is and he's in love with her and he is ready to settle down and have a wife and have a family and find happiness. He's almost 30. And in the 1970s, that was old for not being married. Like the average marriage age was 21 or 22 in the 1970s. So he's ready to have someone to share his life with. Brianna, on the other hand, 
is a young 21, 22 year old girl. And she is not thinking about settling down in the least. This is 1970. Girls are embracing their freedom. And yes, while the average marriage age was still relatively young, it's still a matter of her being an independent spirit and wanting to make something of herself before she settles down and has a family and basically puts herself in a box. She becomes a wife and a mother, and she saw how hard that was for her mom to have a career and have a family. And I think that Claire is a huge inspiration for Brianna, and she wants to make something of herself in this life, but at the same time, doesn't want to complicate things by adding a husband and kids to that. She's just not ready for it, which I think is what she tries to explain to Roger in a lot of ways. She's not very good at communicating that to him, but also he didn't really give her a chance to communicate that to him either. He really just sprung the idea of marriage on her. And I really get why she kind of recoiled from it because it's not something that she wanted. And it's like she says at the calling of the clans and the burning of the stag later um, the next day, she says, I may not believe in marriage at all. She's very up in the air about everything that she feels. She hadn't really internalized it and thought about it. And now that Roger is asking her to do that, she doesn't know what she wants. It's a very confusing time for her. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that I don't think it's a question of whether she loves Roger or not. I think she does love Roger. And I think that that comes across very clearly whenever he's singing at the festival and she looks at the picture and looks up at him and she has these googly eyes looking up at him so adoringly and she knows that he is singing to her and that he does love her. And I think that in that moment, she has kind of acknowledged that, okay, well, I have strong feelings for this guy. I'm willing to have sex with this guy. I don't think that she has admitted to herself that those feelings are actual love because every person that she has admitted to loving in her life has left her. Her mom and her dad, Frank and Claire, were all she had. Her dad died when she was 18 and her mom left to be with Jamie. So Brianna has no one left that she's close to that she loves. And I think on a very core level, she is scared to death that if she admits she loves Roger, he's going to disappear as well. And that's not what she wants. It's just the psychological insecurity of someone who has lost so many people that are close to her that she doesn't want to put herself out there again. And I think that that confuses things in a lot of ways. She's not sure that she believes in marriage because she saw what happened between Claire and Frank and that for most of their marriage, it was a loveless marriage and that they found comfort elsewhere, that Claire's heart belonged to Jamie and Frank loved Sandy and that, okay, so I'm going to put myself in a box and I'm going to commit myself to one person for the rest of my life. But at the end of the day, that person may not be who I was meant to be with. So I can see how all of this is complicating things for Brianna. And I think that Roger comes from such a conservative, traditional background that it is hard for him to see past his own beliefs to see what Brianna is truly struggling with. 
all he can think about is the hurt and rejection that he is feeling when Brianna says she doesn't want to marry him because he loves her. And if you think about that, like, yes, he comes across extremely harsh. But if you think about what he's going through, the woman he loves just said, no, I don't want to marry you. I don't want to have kids with you. I don't want to spend my life with you. This is what he's hearing. It's not necessarily what Brianna is saying, but this is the disconnect. And I think that, yes, they both need to work on their both their listening skills and their communication skills. But when you really think about what Roger is experiencing in this moment, how hard would it be for you to let someone sit there and say, yeah, I'm willing to sleep with you, but that's as far as I'm going to let it go. Because Roger has been that person. Roger has slept with women that he didn't love, and he knew he didn't want it to go any farther than that. And so when Brianna is telling him the same thing, I will sleep with you, but I'm not going to marry you. He knows that she has no, or at least he thinks in his head, she has no intention of taking this relationship any further. And that stings more than anything else. Because he was prepared to spend the rest of his life with her. And to him, pardon my language, but all she wants is to be fuck buddies. He doesn't think about how she arrived at the decision that she did. He's not thinking about how young she is compared to him. He's not thinking about her religious background versus his. Oh, well, she's a good Catholic girl. That doesn't mean diddly squat when your parents divorced and your one parent cheated on the other. It doesn't matter how traditional your values are. Like that shakes you to the core. And as a person that has been through a similar situation, I can tell you that matter of factly that it changes your ideas on marriage. It changes your ideas on any sort of commitment. And so I can understand how scared Brianna was and knowing how I felt about divorce and marriage prior to that life experience, I can see where Roger's coming from too. So understanding that I think really helps you understand their characters as a whole moving forward because just because Roger is hurt by Brianna's decision and the way that she came across, it doesn't mean that he doesn't still love her. And just because Brianna was afraid to tell Roger that she loved him doesn't mean she didn't really love him. It just means that she wasn't ready to make that commitment yet. Bearing all of that in mind, we'll carry that knowledge on into season four because I really think that especially when we get into Down the Rabbit Hole and Wilmington, it really, really, really helps strengthen our understanding of those characters because season four is very intensive on Brie and Roger's characters, but without offering a lot of explanation into their point of view. That's why I felt like it was worth spending the first 20 minutes of this episode breaking that down for you guys, just so that you could kind of get some insight into it. Roger and Bree part at the Scottish Festival at the Calling of the Clans. It's heartbreaking. Rick Rankin and Sophie Skelton, they did a really good job portraying that uncertainty that you feel with a breakup that's kind of not really fully a breakup. I mean, Roger gives her an ultimatum and he says, I love you all or not at all, which refers to the bracelet that he gave her. It's extremely frustrating as a viewer to see that because you're thinking, well, if you really love her, won't you take her in any form? But I get it. He's not willing to 
have half of her and then have the other half not sure if she wants to commit. Like, that's a waste of his time. And I think he sees that. As much as it kills him to admit it, he sees it. So that's where we leave Brian Roger this episode. In the meanwhile, weaved in and out of this craziness, we're getting Jamie and Claire's story. And one moment that I thought was really cool in how they did it, and there were a couple of these moments, and how they overlaid the story, the transitions were, were honestly kind of fascinating to me in this episode. When Brie and Roger were having their fight, for Brie it was about sex, and for Roger it was about something more than that. And so Brianna's feeling the rejection of Roger and blaming his rejection on some hypocritical view that, oh, so you'll have sex with girls, but you'll only marry a virgin. And he says, you're missing the point. The point is I didn't love those girls. It's not because she's a virgin and he thinks she's, you know, they have to get married before they have sex. That's not it at all. For him, he knows how he felt going into having sex with those girls and that he had no intention of following through with a commitment and he doesn't want that for him and Brie. So that's why, that's the dividing line. When he says, you're missing the point. The point is, I didn't love them. I love you, damn it. But you don't love me. She says, I didn't say that. And he looks at her and he says, you didn't have to. That was so heartbreaking for me on so many levels. Like I felt it like a knife in my gut because... I'm feeling how these characters are feeling. Like, I know what they're going through. And it just, it eats at me. And when they transition from Roger walking out to Jamie and Claire's point of view, it's a crash of thunder and a bolt of lightning. And the storm has officially broke that's been brewing this entire episode for Jamie and Claire. The storm breaks, much like it did emotionally for Roger and Bree. It's been brewing, brewing, brewing. Everything looks like it's going to be all sunshine and roses and everything's good and great. And then, boom, all hell breaks loose. So I love that there was a literal storm in Jamie and Claire's point of view. And there was an emotional storm in Brie and Roger's point of view. So that was another parallel for this episode. And then the other transition that I was very fond of was when Brie and Roger are driving to the Scottish Festival, and they're weaving around this country road in North Carolina, and it fades to the same country road, but it's really just a cart path back in the 18th century. I really found that super cool to see how times have changed, but some things still stay the same. Outlander does a really great job with these transitions. I know I've talked about them before, but The transition in Through a Glass Darkly is one of those that is just, like, mind-boggling. There are quite a few transitions in the the beginning of Season 3, so I love how creative the Outlander team gets with how this is all put together. Jamie and Claire's storyline picks up right where Do No Harm left off. Do No Harm leaves off with the hanging of Rufus. And then the false bride in Jamie and Claire's point of view picks up the next morning. And Claire is standing on the porch and you can see the tears in her eyes. She's really understandably shaken after what she went through the night before. And Jamie is talking to Jocasta about, you know what, we can't do this. We're leaving. 
Jocasta is really upset by this because, much like Brianna, Jocasta has lost everyone that she loved in life. And when Jamie entered her life, she got family back. That's something that she hasn't had for a very long time. Her daughters died in the Jacobite Revolution. She's buried three husbands. Her entire family, all of her brothers and sisters are dead. So Jamie is like a lifeline to her. And she really, even in the span of a couple of days, really grew attached to the idea of having someone to leave her life's legacy with. And now he's decided that he can't take it. He says, I'll only be master to my own soul. And I really loved that line. I thought it was a perfect way to say what everyone was feeling. I can't own slaves. I can't own human beings. It's not in me. I don't believe it's right. And I will only be master to my own soul. And I think Jocasta gets it to a certain extent, but she also knows that his attachment to Claire is what is driving his decision. And she feels deep down that if Claire were not part of the equation, Jamie would have taken up her offer to run River Run because that is who he is as a person. He has the right to be a laird. That's where his talents lie. Jocasta plays the mother figure, plays the doting aunt, and she gives Jamie money and everything he's going to need to succeed because she's not going to send him out into the wilderness completely unprepared for what he's about to experience. She gives him pistols, a rifle, horses, a wagon, provisions, money, and the candlesticks that she has that were once his mother Ellen's. And the emotion that you can see plain on both Maria Doyle Kennedy's face and Sam Hewen's face, they both did a fantastic job in this scene. It brought tears to my eyes because you can see how much those candlesticks mean to both of them and by extension how much Ellen meant to both of them. That is the tie that binds in that Jocasta would be willing to give these things, these precious articles, the one last remaining thing she has of her sister to her nephew so that he can have something of his mother is really so touching to me. I loved this scene and more to the point, I loved the moment when Jacasta reaches up and touches Jamie's face and says, there's no use mourning what's already lost, but what I wouldn't give to see your face just once. That has to be so hard, you know? It's the one member of her family that she has it within her reach to have a life experience with, and he's leaving because he doesn't agree with how she is making her way in the world. And it's not that he doesn't love her and it's not that she doesn't love him. It's it's a matter of belief. And I think to a certain extent, she blames Claire for that. Actually, there is no to a certain extent. She blames Claire for it. And so when we see the scene between Jocasta and Claire, it is two very strong women going head to head. And first... And foremost, Jocasta cares about Jamie's well-being. She has taken it upon him to care for him as though he were her son because her own children 
half past. Jocasta confronts Claire and she says, I know how much you love Jamie. It's very clear to me. I'm not questioning that, she said, but she can't agree with Claire letting Jamie squander his talents behind a printer's counter. He was meant for greater things. He's no ordinary man, and he should be a leader of men, not a random print shop employee in the backwater area of North Carolina. That's just not right. It doesn't sit right with her. And I must say, I agree. Jamie was meant for bigger and better things, and it would be a shame, a dreadful shame, if he were to waste away in some town where he just went back and forth from work. Later on in the episode, when Jamie and Claire are alone, and she finally has a chance to ask him what he wants, she says, I don't want you making this decision because you think it's what I want. She wants him to make a decision that is acceptable to both of them. And yes, she told him she would rather live outside of the main conflict areas of the Revolutionary War. Reasonably so. I don't think that's too much to ask. She doesn't want to be thrown into another war. War has ripped her life apart more times than any person should have to endure. I don't blame Claire for wanting to stay the hell out of Dodge. But... I appreciate that her conversation with Jocasta, she actually listened to what Jocasta had to say. Even if she didn't want to hear it, she digested it and realized that to some extent Jocasta may be right, that Jamie may be making this decision. His motivations that are driving him is his love for Claire, and he wants to give Claire whatever she wants, even though it may not necessarily be what he wants. And Claire doesn't want to be that person that takes advantage of the person that she loves just because they're willing to give her whatever she desires. She has a very real and frank conversation with Jamie and says, what do you want? Where do you want to go in life? She said, would being a printer be enough for you? He said, I mean, I was good at it and it kept my body in good shape and my mind agile, but I didn't love it. And... She said, well, at that point, you were also a smuggler and a seditionist. And he says, so you think that I can only be happy when I'm doing illegal things? And I don't think that's what Claire meant. I just think that she was implying that he's always up to something else. It's never a simple life for Jamie. He likes it when things are complicated. And he thrives off of those situations. He says as much. He says, whenever we first met, I was an outlaw. And if it were just me, I would be an outlaw again. And when I was old, I would let my body lay under a tree and let the wolves gnaw my bones. But it's not just me. It doesn't matter what he wants out of life so much. It's not just about him anymore. He can't afford to be selfish with his decisions because he has a family to think about. He has a wife to think about, and he has to do what's best for them. He feels that sense of responsibility and needs to make sure that they're secure and that they're safe. And if he's doing illegal activities, that doesn't bode well for a safe and secure life for his family. 
So this is what he's telling Claire. Like, is this necessarily what I want? No. But is it what I need to do? Yes. I think this is a definitive difference from the Jamie that we met in season one. A youthful, inexperienced, 22-year-old Jamie who was never responsible for anyone in his life. And now we see him 25 years later and he's all grown up and he's making decisions that are best for everybody, not just him. And I think that you have to appreciate that arc in his character 100%. The sad part of the situation is that he feels like even if he's doing what's best for his family, he still doesn't have anything to show for it. And that's what he's saying, like, Claire, I would lay the world at your feet, but I don't have anything to give you. I think what he's kind of missing the point of it is that Claire doesn't need anything but Jamie. And I think that he is so focused on seeing what he could have given her with River Run that, like, he could have decked her with laces and jewels, as he told her in the season four premiere. If they had stayed at River Run, that could have been the life that they led and they left for moral reasons. But it's it's a decision that they made and it's a very it's a life of prosperity that they gave up. So I think that he's he is struggling with that decision a little bit when they decide to take Governor Tryon up on his offer. Something clicks into place for him because he has purpose. He has an end game. He has a use for his skill set. It's not an ideal situation for either of them. It's like Jamie says, you know, if we do this, we're going to be making a deal with the devil. And I know that well. But the question remains, is it worth it? Is the payoff greater than the risk? And ultimately, they decide that it is, and they decide to take him up on his offer and create a home together, which is all Claire ever really wanted, and she tells Jamie as much. When he asks if she would rather move to Boston and and have a fresh start there, and she says, Boston is not a fresh start for me. All I want is for us to build a home together. She wants a new area clean from any influence or memories of her previous life. She wants to be with Jamie. He is her home, much as he said in season one that she is his. So once they come to that conclusion that they can create a home together on Fraser's Ridge, everything else really just falls into place, which I think is beautiful. The one caveat to that scene is the damn strawberries. I know it's in the book, guys. I know it's in the book, but it does not make any sense This episode is taking place in the fall, in the fall, and strawberries are summertime crops. You're telling me that up in the mountains of the Blue Ridge 200 years ago when it was notoriously cooler, that you got strawberries blooming in like October? Hell no. And you can even see like in the green screen backdrop, like the trees are turning colors. Like it is very clearly fall. And yet there are just these strawberries blooming on top of this ridge. It just doesn't make any sense to me and it bothers me every time I see that scene. I'm sorry if that's just something that you can't unsee now. (laughs) Because I know that I get frustrated when I listen to podcasts where that kind of thing happens. But it's just a, a discontinuity with the timeline. They try so hard to fact check all of these things and make sure that 
the period clothing is accurate and stuff like that, yet they make a fluff as simple as strawberries being a fruit that is available on the Blue Ridge in October. Like, come on. Come on. I know you're better than that, Outlander producers. A couple of more simple things to kind of wrap up this episode with. We see Ian kind of gain a little bit of independence in this episode. His fascination with the Native Americans continues to grow tenfold. I think he's really found a buddy in John Quincy Myers, somebody that can answer his questions and feed his burning desire to know more about this this culture. And whenever he he doesn't really ask, he puts it in such a way, he was like, John Quincy Myers has asked me to go to this Indian trading post with him. Isn't that nice of him? (laughs) Like kind of backing Jamie and Claire into a corner and they 100% see what's happening. Claire's scared because she knows how dangerous of a situation it is for Ian to go up into the mountains to these Native American trading posts. And I think Jamie feels that fear as well, even though he's a little better at hiding it. But whenever this scene happened, another scene from season three kind of entered my mind. And it was when Jamie was telling Jenny that you might as well give him a taste of freedom while he thinks it's still yours to give. And Jamie's taking his own advice in this situation because Ian has made it perfectly clear that he is capable of making his own decisions and that he knows how dangerous life can be. He's experienced it. He made his case to Jamie and he made it well and Jamie agreed to let him stay in America with them because of it. But in that scene, Ian is showing that while he defers to Jamie, he is capable of making his own decisions where his welfare is concerned. I mean, he's 17 or so at this age. So in 18th century terms, he's a man and, you know, he is capable of making his own decisions. So Jamie is very calculatedly making the executive decision to say, okay, yeah, sure, do what you want, because Ian's going to do it anyway, either that or he's going to resent him for it. So there's no sense in creating that rift when he would probably be perfectly safe with John Quincy Myers, who clearly knows the area, knows the people that he's trading with, And there's really no safer way for Ian to get the experience of meeting Native Americans and feeding his interest in this new culture. I really thought that was cool. And the parting topic that we're going to discuss is the appearance of the ghost. Two bombshells in this episode. First, the ghost. And second, that the ghost is a time traveler. I think. In the grand scheme of the Gabaldon universe, time travelers are drawn to each other. It's not happenstance. And I think this is something that we're going to get more and more details on as the books continue and as she writes more supplemental material in the form of short stories and novellas, maybe separate big books that are outside of the Outlander series. I'm sure all of that is coming and that we are going to get more details on that in the future. But it's interesting, nonetheless, to see this. And as the season progresses into season five, we get more and more details into who these time travelers are, why they are where they are, and 
while we never get reasons for why this man who um, is known as Ottertooth, why Ottertooth appeared to Claire and led her back to Jamie. We don't know any of that. And we never get firm answers on that. We do learn a little bit more about why he was there in the first place. So TBD on that. Um, Can't wait to talk about it with you guys when we get to the season four finale, I believe. So that'll be fun to discuss. And for now, that about wraps up my thoughts on 403, The False Bride. Before we get to listener comments, I want to go over performance of the episode, which I thought belonged to Rick Rankin this episode. I thought he did a really great job portraying Roger in all of his confused and love-struck glory. I really do love Roger's character. I love how Rick Rankin portrays him. I think he was a perfect casting. I mean, that boy has the voice of an angel. I love his rendition of the Scottish folk song that he sang at the festival. And hearing Roger sing is just soothing to my soul, especially as we progress into the seasons and things get more complicated watching these earlier episodes when life was so simple for Roger, really makes my heart happy. So Rick Rankin gets performance of the episode for me. Quote of the episode is one of the very first lines of the episode, but I think it's so clever, such a good toast. It's when Roger says, may the roof above never fall in and may we below never fall out. I was like, oh, what a good housewarming toast. That's so cute. I want to use it myself. (laughs) With those parting words, we will move on to listener comments. But yes, quote of the episode, I'm on a Roger kick today. So sue me. Alrighty. So from Facebook, Marty Myers Albershart says, Brianna and Roger had cultural differences. And also there just were some in both cultures who still felt that way about being a virgin in their time. It was a time right on the cusp, and in the U.S., with birth control being available, it was normal to have premarital sex and for a woman to want a career. Roger is a little older and comes from a home and culture that were both more conservative. He's more like Jamie in this regard, actually. So no, she did not lead him on. Roger loosens up about this issue. Similarly, Jamie and Claire had to work out roles and expectations, too. I agree. Yes. That's what I think is missing a lot in people's understanding of Roger and Brianna is that everybody has their issues to work through in their relationships. Were they not so good at communicating? Yes, they need to work on that. And they do work on that. But there are also cultural differences, religious differences, and gender differences. Honestly, like their their ideas of gender roles in general are different. So coming to compromises on all of that is key to the success of their relationship. I 100% agree. I don't think she led him on. I don't think that he overreacted, really. I mean, he was voicing his emotions and trying to communicate as best he could, just like she was. So I think that they both messed up, but I don't think that it was irreparable damage to either one of their reputations or the portrayal of their characters. Angela Hickey says, very mixed on this episode. It's where the show went really downhill fast depicting Roger and their relationship. And honestly, it it was portrayed differently in the books. The situation was a bit different. 
I'm not sure whether that would have helped the situation because the show really just didn't give us the background information that we needed and the sense of emotional understanding that we needed to get the characters' motivations. So I think that more than anything, like the writing and the way they set the stage for all of this is where the show started to go south. Joan Cohen says, Bree and Roger are in different phases of their lives. Roger, at 30, is ready to settle down. He's feeling the loss of his childhood home and the Reverend, as well as missing Brianna, so it's not surprising that he jumps in with both feet to fill that void by proposing and mapping out his and Brianna's future. Although Brianna is 22, the average age for marriage in 1970 was 20 and a half for women and 22 and a half for men. She still has a lot to process. The revelation about her paternity, her career path, the loss of her mom. I don't feel Brie led Roger on at all. She has a different mindset since she came of age during the late 1960s when there's a huge societal shift in attitude towards marriage, premarital sex, and women's roles. This is paralleled by John Quincy Myers mentioning that Cherokee women choose who they bed with and who they marry. This was another parallel that was huge in this episode because I love the little look that Claire gave Jamie when John Quincy Myers was talking about they choose who they marry. In that moment, Claire is also thinking about the society in which she comes from because she knows that that's how the future is in a lot of ways. They are not held to these societal norms. The century that she has time traveled to that Jamie is from is very rigid in its ideals. And she says as much in season three, when she comes back, she says, Christ, I've forgotten how bloody rigid this century is. And it's so true. There were societal norms and you did not deviate from them or you got burned at the stake or stoned or got garbage thrown on you. It was just a terrible time to be alive, in my opinion. So um, you just couldn't be your own person at all without people looking down upon you. And it that sucks. So um, I love that little look that they shared, but also that there was this parallel between this new culture that Ian is so fascinated with versus how Brianna's feeling in the societal evolution that's happening in the 1960s, 1970s, where Roger and Brianna's timeline is. Joan continues, I'm not surprised that Brie put the brakes on Roger's proposal, but I just wish the writers didn't make him sound so jerky when she turns him down. I love the transition from the paved road to the dirt road to bring us into Jamie and Claire's storyline. Jamie, like Brie, also has a lot to process to define his next role. But unlike Brie and Roger, Jamie and Claire have the experience and depth of understanding to work through it together. It makes sense that they chose Tryon's offer since it gave them the chance to create a home on their own terms, despite knowing what the future would bring with the looming revolution. I thought the scene with Ottertooth's ghost was spooky and very well done, although I don't think I would have been as calm as Claire was. I know, Claire was so calm. She was just standing inches away from a ghost and she's like, who are you and what do you want? I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would have had a stroke by that point. I hate the idea of ghosts. Like, I find it so creepy. I 100% believe in them. But I get very freaked out by the idea of them as well. So I do not think I would have been able to keep my cool. The special effects of Ottertooth's ghost, though, very well done. I thought it was very clever how they only made him appear when it was lightning outside and he was lit by fire. But then when the lightning faded and it was just normal, 
he wasn't there. It was like the lightning was charging his appearance and allowing him to manifest to Claire. I Like he was drawing on that energy in the atmosphere to make himself known. I thought that was really cool. And last but not least, Ashley on Instagram says, This is one of those times where I both loved and hated the changes from the book. Hated, felt like Roger and Bree weren't dating. They were so awkward, and then he proposes, which seems so out of left field. I felt the proposal was just so much more natural in the book, especially since it wasn't tied to having sex, and part of the reason why so many people dislike show Roger. It also felt like they were officially broken up after she left. Loved the change to the Scottish Festival taking place in North Carolina, especially since I lived in North Carolina, versus Book having the festival in Pennsylvania slash New York. I should look this up, but lazy. Love that connection to Jamie and Claire and the scene of Roger and Bree driving down the same road, fading into Jamie and Claire riding down the path. It was so good to see Roger and Bree again, but with it being almost a full season since we saw either, it felt jarring to see awkward slash dating. Wanting to marry and broken up? All in one episode. <laughs> I agree. And like I said before, I feel like we should have seen Roger and Bree from the beginning. I get that they wanted to establish Jamie and Claire in America, and that's why we're just getting them in the third episode of season four. But after so much time away from them, it's really jarring. Like, I would have thought that they would have been stronger in their relationship after two years of dating. And to be honest, there is a scene in season five where we see that they did see each other. And while they didn't see each other very often, they seemed to be in a fairly good place whenever they did visit each other in their respective locations. So it was really just very confusing to the viewer. I get why people are confused. With that in mind, Ashley, I totally get what you're saying. And that wraps up listener comments for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about 404 Common Ground, another interesting episode. Um, Season four wasn't one of my favorites, but I do feel like they tried to cram a lot into 13 episodes. So there's always a lot to unpack with each of these episodes. So make sure to join me next week for that. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. (laughs) 